Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to Gather and Go, the podcast that helps you plan, promote, and lead better trips. I'm your host, Brian Jewell, and I am feeling merry and bright here in this holiday season and especially grateful that you decided to spend some of your time with us today. And as always, our promise to you is that we're going to do everything we can to make that investment of your time worth your while. Today, we are definitely going to deliver on that promise because I have a featured conversation coming up with Tanya Matthews, who is the president and CEO of the International African American Museum, which is getting ready to open in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, We have a fascinating and wide ranging conversation about tourism and education and the role that those two things can play in helping to build bridges between people of diverse backgrounds. You're not going to want to miss that. Before we get into that conversation, though, let's start with some travel news that you may have missed. Now, if you fly domestically with any kind of regularity, you probably have been hearing for, well, quite a few years now that soon you would be required to carry a new kind of identification called Real ID that the Department of Homeland Security would be requiring for all domestic flights. Uh, Now, that was scheduled to go into effect in May of 2023, but Earlier this month, the Department of Homeland Security rolled back the deadline for Real ID requirement for domestic flights yet again. Now, Real ID is an alternative identification that has uh, enhanced biometric data and security measures that states are now offering uh, as a replacement for the traditional driver's license or photo IDs that you used to be able to get uh, to get you on an airplane. Now, real IDs take longer to obtain, uh, you need more documentation, and they're significantly more expensive than traditional driver's licenses, at least in many states. Now, implementation was scheduled to take place in May of 2023, but DHS said in a statement earlier this month that, quote, real ID progress over the past two years has been significantly hindered by state driver's licensing agencies having to work through the backlogs created by the pandemic. Uh, Once again, it seems uh, pandemic disruptions are throwing everything into disarray. So DHS has set a new deadline for implementation. That deadline is now May 7th of 2025. Uh, Just for some context here, the legislation requiring Real ID was passed by Congress in 2005 and implementation was originally scheduled to go into effect in 2008. But uh, the deadlines have been pushed back numerous times and for various reasons, over the past 15 years. So we will keep an eye on this and see if that requirement does in fact go into force in May of 2025. There's your travel news for this week. Let's move on now to our road tip. Uh, This is the segment of the program where we reach into our grab bag of knowledge from decades in travel and share some tips with you that will help you make your next trip smoother and uh, more productive and hopefully have a few less hassles. Now, very often I meet people on the road who ask me questions like, hey, Brian, how do you stay in shape when you work and travel? Because uh, if you are involved in our business, you know there are a lot of meals. In fact, uh, when you're on the road for uh, tourism work, it seems like you spend most of your time eating. And if you travel a lot, it's not uncommon that you gain a lot of weight along the way. Well, let me share with you my secret for forestalling some of the seemingly inevitable weight gain that comes with working and travel. And I'll just be honest with you. My weight has fluctuated a lot over the years. When I first got into travel, I gained about 60 pounds in the first 18 months or so. And obviously that is no good. Uh, I have tried many, many things over the years, and here is what I have found that works. Trying to diet on the road doesn't really work because you are in so many places where you don't really have control over the menu or how food is being prepared. But here is what works for me. Every single morning when I wake up in the hotel before the day starts, I visit the hotel fitness center and I spend half an hour on the treadmill. It doesn't matter what I have lined up for that day doesn't matter how early the morning starts, doesn't matter how late I was up the night before, I get in my half hour on the treadmill. And uh, that is just enough activity to keep me from going way overboard in terms of weight gain while I travel. I'm not going to lie to you and say that half an hour on the treadmill 
makes up for every bad decision I make at a restaurant table on the road, but it certainly takes the edge off, makes it a little bit easier to control things when I get back home. So no matter where you are, there is a very high chance that your hotel has a fitness center. And if you will hit it around, oh, I don't know, 6, 6.30, 7 in the morning, you're likely to find that it's not too crowded. You have the place to yourself and you can get in a nice workout before the day begins. There's your road tip of the week. Now let's move on to some news from us. I told you in the last episode that we were working on putting together the schedule of our on-site familiarization trips for 2023. And I told you we were going to some fantastic places that I wasn't able to share with you yet. Well, today I am ready to break the silence and tell you about our first fam tour destination for 2023. It is a big one. Are you ready? We are going to Savannah, Georgia. That's right. One of the most popular tourism cities on the East Coast, particularly in the Southeast. Savannah, Georgia is one of the jewels of Georgia. I've been there numerous times. It's a fantastic place. The food, the history, the culture, the scenery, they are all amazing. Groups love Savannah. Travel planners love Savannah. And if you go there with us, I can guarantee that you're going to love it too. Now, our familiarization tour is going to be July 30th through August 2nd. That's going to be hosted by the fine folks there at Visit Savannah. You can learn more about the tour and register to attend on our website, grouptravelleader.com slash savannah dash fam. And don't worry about writing that down. I will put that link in the show notes. You can click through, register right there and get your name on the list for consideration to attend this fam. I can tell you uh, with full confidence, this is going to be a popular one. We're going to get many more registrations than we have space for. So do yourself a favor, get your registration in quickly. And we would love to have you join us for a fantastic trip in Savannah next July. Well, it's just about time for us to get into that featured conversation with Tanya Matthews. You know, I heard Tanya speak at a conference in 2021, and I found her so insightful and so compelling. I thought I've got to get her on the podcast to share some of this information with our audience, because I believe a lot of what she has to say is applicable not only to museums and education, but also to the tourism community, especially as tourism grapples with some of the difficult things that we encounter in our industry, that we encounter in our history. And as we go around the country and take people to historic places, we also have to kind of grapple with some of the difficult things about that history. Tanya's perspective on this is so encouraging and so enlightening and insightful. I simply had to share it with you. You are going to love this interview. Let me encourage you to hang around through the entire conversation, because at the end of the conversation, I have some more thoughts on this whole situation with Real ID, and I'm going to share them as part of the hot minute. You're not going to want to miss that. We will be right back with Tanya Matthews. All right, everybody. My guest today has spent time as a poet, an engineer, a university administrator, and an education leader. She's now the president and CEO of the International African American Museum, which will open in Charleston, South Carolina in January of 2023. She's the author of several books and has been named one of the most influential women in Charleston. Tanya Matthews, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I am excited to be with you. We're so excited to have you. I got to tell you, I thought I had accomplished some things in my life and then I read <laughs> your resume. <laughs> it just made me feel like I need to get in gear. So can you give us some insight how, how you went from poetry to engineering to education to museums and anything else yeah. that I've left off the list? Well, I think, you know, the first part of that is is endurance, because when you're younger and you're doing it, folks consider you flighty, undecided and directionless. <laughs> uh, but at this stage, I am accomplished and have had multiple life experiences. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, interestingly, probably the through line is actually around um, education, mm. uh, empathetic education and commuting communicating things that are really different. If you think about the way poets work, that's like our superpower. We get away with saying stuff that no one else is allowed to say. Um, and even when I was on the engineering and math and science side, you know, I had gravitated into education. That's what took me into science museums, science centers, took me to university. 
Uh, and now that I find myself at an African-American history museum, it's it's very interesting. I mean, I clearly consider myself a museum professional at this point. It's it's my flavor of, of education mm-hmm. uh, within the, the bigger ecosystem. But I think it also acknowledges sort of the hidden roles that you have, you know, as the, the chief diversity officer or manager of inclusion programs, or just being the one to kind of bring that up in conversations and having context for it. So for me, it kind of fits. Um, but these days, uh, I also like to shorthand it. So I have my new mantra. Um, you know, it leans into like sort of my education side, but also helps explain kind of the transition from engineering to, um, you know, leading a history museum. And so I like to say that uh, the two scariest words uh, in the English language are racism and algebra. I happen to do both. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, but you'd be surprised at how similar some of the skill sets and techniques and ways of getting to those conversations are. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And then <laughs> a- add on top of all of that, mm-hmm. you are opening a museum in one of the most popular tourist destinations. Yes. In America. So I imagine you were having to uh, download some intelligence about tourism and and the role that a museum can play in a tourist Mm -hmm. destination. Tell us what you're discovering there. You know, I've had to uh, do exactly as you said, download that kind of information, um, but this time from someone who wants to manage it as opposed to just experience it. So home Mm. home for me is Washington, D.C., another grand uh, tourist uh, destination where we have that love-hate relationship with all the folks that are coming in. Uh, And one of the things that my mother always took quite seriously is family vacation, which was a vacation mm. for none of us. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so we, we did that. So as tourists, as folks living in a community with high tourism, but, you know, being in the space, we were thinking about how to manage a cultural institution within that space. And you've really got to, to balance, I think, two critical things, which is one, understanding these are your, your customers, your visitors. You know, tourism is a very, very big part of, of your business. And these are folks who are going to see you maybe once, If this is a regular destination for them, eh, maybe once every couple of years. Plus, though, you do have what I call the home team, right? Mm. You do have where you're actually located. You do um, hopefully have public support uh, for, Mm. for your institution. You do hopefully have members who are also local and regional. And so thinking about the kind of experience they're expecting at your institution is often a little different from what um, your tourism visitors are expecting. And so I think balancing uh, those two things, um, balancing the seasons, right? So you have tourism seasons and and flow. Now, Charleston does have the the privilege of being more or less a 12 month out of the year kind of city, right? Um, I've I've been in uh, Michigan, Detroit for the last decade or so. Folks like, yeah, it gets cold (laughs) in December. No, no, it doesn't. It it does not. It does not. And so we do have um, opportunity, but even inside being a year round um, sort of community and destination, you still have tourism seasons, right? Most folks don't just grab a bag in the middle of mm-hmm. February because they can. You're dealing with school year seasons, vacation seasons and that kind of thing. So thinking through and, and managing that from everything from your staffing to your offering to when you decide to launch new exhibits has been all part of the, the learning curve here. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a learning curve that must be. So um, there are a number of really excellent African-American museums around the country. Uh, I think of DC, certainly the Smithsonian's museum there has, has gotten very wide acclaim. I wonder if you could let our audience know what was the impetus for opening a museum of this nature and specifically in Charleston? Yeah. So I think one of the things for, for viewers to know is that this is a moment to to get excited, right? So when we think about, for example, art museums, no one ever asks, well, we already have the Met in New York. Why would we ever build another art museum in our city? We have an Mm. intuitive understanding. Oh, there's so much art, right? Some's national, Mm. global, local to us. We all want an art museum. And so usually Mm. communities can afford to invest and create that. Uh, And the same thing is beginning, I think, to become clearer with uh, museums that talk about history and specific history, such as African-American history. And so the fact that you can have such two large-scale African-American history museums being built in such close time frame is actually not a moment to be missed. Um, 
And so, you know, we are one of the larger museums. Once we are completed and open up in January, um, the International African American Museum will be the second largest in the country, right after our sister uh, up the road uh, in Washington, D.C. at the Smithsonian. Um, one of the things we have in common is that the two of us are encyclopedic museums. Um, folks who are familiar with history or African American history museums in their own communities might have subject specific museums. For example, a civil mm-hmm. rights uh, museum or uh, the African-American Music uh, Museum that also just opened up, those are considered subject specific. So uh, we are an encyclopedic museum. We go all the way back to about 300 BCE uh, to somewhat modern times, you know, obviously more in depth in some places than the other. And one of the reasons is, you know, we're being built at the site of uh, Gadsden's Wharf, which was one of the nation's most prolific international slave trading ports, which is why Charleston and why our location. It's also why we're encyclopedic, though, because we wanted to make the point that even though we're we're grounded here in ground zero and we have this power of place thing uh, going on, that it's important to understand that the story in the period of slavery is in the middle of the African-American journey not the beginning or the end. And so that pushed us into being um, an encyclopedic museum because we really wanted to to kind of double down on that philosophy uh, and give folks an understanding of of the full context. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And just to make sure that people uh, don't miss this, it's not just that the museum is nearby an area that was key in the slave trade. I mean, you guys are like physically, literally right on the spot, right? We are physically on the spot and actually one of the last developed spots, you know, so when we're talking about, so prolific, when we say prolific slave trading port, you know, what do we mean? Um, Some historians are estimating between 45 and 55% of all enslaved folks that came via the transatlantic slave trade would have come through this space. So we're not talking rowboat, we're talking cruise ship size. Mm. Uh, And some reports show up to uh, 16 of these ships being at port at once. So it's a huge, huge space, right? And even goes back several blocks when you think about what it takes to have an active port. Um, And uh, Charleston uh, has been developing uh, this space. Um, And so it has become a bit of, of our cultural center. And our initial site was actually a few blocks away. It was a few blocks away and to the left of a parking lot, um, which, you know, now being next to a parking lot, not such a bad idea, but, you know. Um, <laughs> and so, but then as of those early conversations were, were happening, um, one of our advisors, um, ultimately board members, was also, you know, a historian. And he was doing research and looking things up and realized how close we were to the site of Gadsden's Wharf and then realized, hey, you know, there's there seems to be some land over there that we could use and, and occupy. And it was it was a really interesting story there because actually the city had just agreed to sell uh, the property mm. to a developer. But um, uh, one of our founding visionaries was the former mayor of uh, Charleston, uh, Mayor uh, Joe Riley. And so he went and uh, negotiated to get the land back uh, so that the museum could actually be built right here on the site. Of, uh, of Gadsden's Wharf. So we've got our historical markers, we've got our UNESCO markers um, also in mm. the space. So uh, I've heard you speak before about how even the museum's architecture is kind of pointing to the significance of that site and honoring it. Can you kind of walk us through, you know, how the site is going to be reflected in the building and the storytelling? Yeah, so there there are a couple of points there. And, and one, you know, if you think about a lot of sites like this, usually you think of uh, memorial park or monument or sort of something like that. And so for a museum to be built on that site um, is a real triumph, um, I think, uh, for us. And so the architecture and and some of the other um, spaces really give a nod to that. So our building, when you look at the pictures, you know, we are lifted up. Right. So you can see that the building is actually more like hovering above the ground. And folks may assume, well, of course, you're in the low country and you're on the coast. So maybe that's just the building code. Oh, and actually, if you look at some of our neighbors, you'll see, no, uh, we could have made some other choices. Uh, but when our architect, um, who uh, Mr. Cobb, was in the process of design and learning about the site and what the site would be used for, he began to take on our own language around understanding that this was hallowed ground. And so outside of, out of that conversation, 
he decided that, wow, the building is less important than the ground itself. And how about mm. therefore the museum building shouldn't even touch the ground. And that's mm. why he raised us up on 18, 13 foot pillars, uh, sort of in honor of that understanding. And then what that actually created for us was an entire outdoor space that has now become the um, African Ancestors Memorial Garden. So then we got a landscape architect uh, to come in and help us think through and interpret that space. We have these garden within a garden designs in conversation with the water and the, the various um, communities and cultures that built into this space. And so as you're walking through that space, there's a lot of intentionality now uh, in, in everything that's that's inside of, of what we consider the entire kind of museum uh, space and complex for us. So I know you spend a lot of time uh, thinking about the intersection of formal education mm -hmm. and informal education. I wonder how you see that dynamic playing out in the context of a museum and the, the role mm. that a museum plays in that kind of informal education process that continues after people finish school. Yeah, yeah. So I think for me, it's it's really important. Um, you know, I think about it, there's an education ecosystem, right? There's there's mm. formal, you know, classroom, there's informal, you've got uh, museums or parks or experiences, then you've got your after school, your preschool. And of course, these days, we know we have online and we have educational media channels. So all of that together is, is part of sort of the ecosystem, right? And so when we consider informal, uh, we also use the, the phrase free choice, um, meaning learning opportunities that folks may choose to, to add on or experience in a way that perhaps there isn't a test afterwards, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But um, one of the things that I really like about it, though, is that there, that means there's also no single formalized point of entry. So when we're dealing with the the formal uh, um, education space, the classroom, which I'm still a fan of and my mom's an educator. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so there's one doorway in and one doorway out. When you come in that door, you know, we get to make some assumptions about what you know, what you're bringing to the table based on sort of the, the space that you're coming out of, the age, the grade, sort of the prerequisites, those kinds of things. And there's things that happen in that room. And then when you leave, there's an expectation that you're taking, you know, very particular things with you. One of the things I really liked about museums is that while our inside space, and we're all going to have this experience experience together, we had a whole bunch of doors in and a whole bunch of doorways out. So we don't have those prerequisites about what you have to know and, and what you have had to have already experienced to really understand what's, what's going on, that we have these multiple doorways and then we take on the responsibility of meeting you where you are and helping you get to where you want to go. Um, but there are also additional elements like the ability to learn with, say, multimodal readers and learners, which is just a fancy way of saying some kids are going to look at your videos and some kids are going to read what's on the wall and some kids are going to do that hands-on thing you got in the corner, right? That we can have all of that kind of going um, together to build on top of each other um, to support different kinds of learners, multi-generational learning. Uh, and also part of the superpower of museums is we make really, really good space for courageous learning, right? Courageous curiosity, stuff that's scary um, outside of our space, such as slavery, such as bias, such as some of the sadder histories of our time become a bit less scary um, kind of in our space because of our multiple ways of, of approaching it. Um, and also allows us to unearth the complexities. I'm, I'm very big on the concept of, of Black joy, particularly in, inside a space like this. It's kind of hard to do that in your 11th grade world history class, right? There, there isn't a chapter on joy, sort of, mm. kind of in that space. But also often we, you know, because of the volume of information, we're separating things. But in a museum, you can have a plaque, you can have a multimedia story or you can have a piece of art and it's all designed to literally do the exact same thing. So I know you have sort of developed a framework for helping to draw people into stories that uh, are not always easy stories and, and to do so in a way that's that's really inclusive. So could you kind of give us your vision for how to do that sort of in general and then maybe some examples for how you see the museum doing that through specific elements? Mm. So I think, you know, there are there are many ways and styles to to getting into this. Um, but one of the things that I'm a, a big proponent of is is the full arc 
mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. Humans love stories. Like we, we love we love stories, and you know, you, you're, everybody's got their podcast or you know the, the events they like to go to. And so, I think one of the challenges um, with the way that we typically teach or talk about our challenging histories is that we do them little chunks at a time, just very isolated. We're just going to talk about this particular moment, and we don't do the full arc. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that means often you may be missing um, the epilogue. You may be missing the resilience. You may be missing the lessons learned. Um, you may be lis- missing the legacies and the echoes. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, shorthand, you're missing the so what. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm a big fan of of history or art or whatever it is for the so what. And it's and it's not um, an aggressive or rhetorical question. It really is, okay, I've got this, so what? Mm -hmm. Like now what? And so I'm a big fan of sort of the arc uh, and putting things uh, in in full context, right? So so for example, um, we've got uh, one of our outdoor uh, installations um, are these sort of two um, granite walls, right? They're, they're polished black granite walls, and they help us to demarcate and outline where a former storage house used to be, where enslaved people were, were kept in storage for many reasons. Um, you know, we got to think livestock, not people at that time. Mm. You're holding them, you're you're separating them, labeling, figuring out where things are going, maybe holding until the price goes up. And what we found in the historic record is that at this particular storage house, the the, um, structure that we had unearthed, there was one period when just over 700 uh, individuals were being held waiting for their price to go up. An unexpected chill came through the low country and we lost them all in one single episode, Mm -hmm. right? So you find that story. And usually what we would simply do is just going to tell that story in that moment. So of course we had to honor the space and the moment. Um, and so we have these, these two polished black granite walls, like cutting across the space where the storage house used to be. And the walls are polished so smoothly that you can actually see your reflection in the walls. Mm. And then in between the two walls, you've got this row of kneeling hunched figures that um, represent the folks that we lost in that space. But as those figures progress, the carving seems to suggest that they are actually emerging out of concrete. And then on mm. the outside of the wall, we've inscribed the Maya Angelou quote, and still I rise. Mm. So part of that is communicating that story, even that snapshot, um, and deliberately saying, but there's more to the story. Keep moving, have a conversation right here. Let's sort of talk about kind of where we get in. Um, and it's also a good example of what I mean by multiple doors, right? So some folks are going to come in and they're going to want to come in a door that, that is reflective um, and regretful and, and sad, you know, in that space. And so we've given that door there, right? That, that mm-hmm. door is there. Oh, it's open. Some folks want to come through the door that says, look how far we've come. Like this is, this is, this is what happened. You know, not everyone made it through this. I am a descendant of someone who survived in this place. This is, this is amazing. You know, and so they're coming through the door of, of resilience. Some folks are coming through the door of, whoa, I cannot believe this happened. Wait, did this happen? Is, you know, is this real? I haven't heard this story. What is happening there? Right. And so of course, Hashtag QR codes. You know, so we've got sort of more of the story kind of in that space. And so that's that's part of 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 I think, you know, what I mean about trying to put things in context and sort of having these these multiple doors and spaces uh, that folks can get in. But it was all literally the same story. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine uh, that some people are going to come into the space. People who are not coming from, uh, you know, an African-American background might come into the space uh, a little bit on guard, just unsure of w- what am I going to be presented with? Uh, how is it going to make me feel? Um, what what's okay for me to think? What you know, it, it can be it can be challenging to process. So you talk a lot about empathy and mm-hmm. authenticity in, in meeting people in those places. Explain how that works and and how you would invite someone from my background to approach your subject matter in your museum? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. And I think um, all cultural institutions right now are dealing with that question in one way or another, um, you know, about who gets invited. And I think Mm. um, it's, again, we only ask the first question. So the first stage is invitation, right? Then the second stage is welcome. And then the third stage is conversation, right? You can invite someone to the space. It's fine. You know, they, they get the invitation. But when you say that they're tentative, they're on guard, they don't quite know, that's why you need to think through how do we make a sense of welcome, 
right? Mm. Um, for a space like ours, we are welcoming folks into a space of public learning. Now, if you think mm. about this, most folks do not learn in public. And in most spaces, this is not considered a good thing. Even mm. in uh, some of our classroom spaces, there's an assumption that you know this. And raising your hand to say, I don't know, doesn't work in that space, doesn't work on the stage, doesn't work in, you know, in a lot of these different spaces. And so, hey, we're going to learn on purpose. We're going to learn in public. That's part of the welcome. I think also, you know, for our for our staff and our team members, you know, the 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 more we communicate that we are open you know, to this learning that, that we're, we're here to welcome folks regardless of where they are. That's also a big indicator. Um, and I do think that, um, that empathy is, is key for me, you know, because there are different ways, I think, of reacting in spaces that you are unfamiliar with and maybe slightly afraid of, right? Mm-hmm. Some folks may come in very timidly, very quietly, and you're working to bring them out, right? You want to be empathetic around that. Maybe they're not ready to come out yet, but you know, or maybe they don't, they won't know what's happening. They don't want to be made an example of, you know, kind of in that space. And then you have some folks who will react to um, their unknowing uh, and the, the tinges of fear with a little bit more aggressive style, right? A little bit more aggressive and sort of in their personality. And it may seem uh, confrontational. In that space, uh, empathy is also an incredible diffuser. <laughs> um, mm, of sort of those yeah. those kinds of conversations because part of that is also testing the water. If I come in hot, mm. are they going to come back in hot? Oh, I came in hot and she offered me a Charleston Chewy. This just got weird, but this is really good. <laughs> <laughs> so let's keep having this conversation. And so there's, I think there's there's going to be a lot a lot of work to do. Um, and I think what's what's really um, fascinating about this is that we will have folks simultaneously in the space on those different planes, right? You'll have your quiet ones, you're not so quiet ones. And so I think one of the, the tips and tricks is not just how do we say, to use our two prominent examples, welcome white folks into the space. How do we welcome black folks in the space? It's how do we welcome white folks and black folks into the space at the same time? Right. And together, mm. knowing yeah. um, that there may be some differences um, in in that. Um, and I think also, you know, anticipating the element of surprise on all sides. Right. You know, there are um, some uh, white Americans who know quite a bit about about this history and they are just as excited about the museum as the next person. And then there are some African-Americans who also don't know much about this history and they're going to be coming into that space. And so one. I think cultural background is something um, that uh, that I'm aware of and, and looking out for, but also um, educational background and not like generic, like how much do you know or do you think you know about the space you're walking into? That's actually the other very big um, differentiator in that space. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. So I wonder if you could speak to tourism leaders or museum leaders or educators in other parts of the country, in other destinations, give them some insight on how they can maybe employ some of these philosophies to create broader and more impactful and more inclusive tourism and education experiences in their communities. Yeah. So I think, you know, one of one of the the best tips that I have is 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 the one that takes the most time and makes us roll our eyes. You know, we all have particular conversations or subjects. You're like, OK, we, we will get to that. But we know that's going to take a lot. Oh, how many how many community committees is that? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And you know, we have to invite so and so to that conversation. <laughs> OK, so so but I would say that going through those journeys and never forgetting them is more than half the battle to understanding what our visitors are going to go through. Right. Mm. Uh, and it gives us credibility in the space when you can say, hey, we struggled through this, too. You would never believe the kind of conversations we had to have. When you remember um, sort of your own growth patterns and, and what it took for you to get to where you are in the particular storytelling, it helps, I think, to welcome our visitors. It helps to make our invitation to visitors um, more authentic. And I think it also shores up our empathy, right? We remember how long we took to get there. Uh, and I think it's very dangerous um, and, and very seductive to actually forget how long it took you to get to where you are. Right. Because then you become less sympathetic to the learning curve that your sort of visitors are on. 
So for example, you know, our museum has been in the works for 23 years. Wow. Okay. Now that's not, we're already trying to figure out where the brick goes for 23 years. (laughs) There's a, there was a lot of pre-work, a lot of conversation, a lot of massaging, um, you know, know the story, the, you know, um, being on this road to frankly, who gets to tell the story. Right. Um, and so, um, we can't forget how long it took us to get there, um, because it would, it would, um, distract us from being able to understand, I think what our visitors are doing. So one, um, to remember the hard conversations and remember the learning curve, because I think that really helps as we think about crafting and understanding our visitor experience. Um, the second is, um, you know, whenever possible, you know, get the story from the folks you're telling the story about, mm. right? I think that right now that conversation has become so contentious, we forget that it's not even always possible. For mm. example, many of our history museums talk about communities and cultures that no longer exist, right? Um, and say, you know, what I wouldn't give to talk to someone who was actually from Pompeii, so I'd learn what this was for. Okay, right. that is great. But for some reason, you don't quite feel the, the same way about perhaps the south side of Chicago mm. or, or, or sort of different kind of communities. And so, you know, wrapping our heads around the mindset that it's actually a great advantage and privilege to be able to talk to folks who have actually lived through the story or are carrying pieces of the story. It may get sticky, it may get difficult, but I think that really, really helps. Um, and uh, in, in terms of those kind of things, it makes it, I think, easier to, to handle, right? So we, we talk about the, the journey of 10 million people. That's great. Um, and it's good. And folks get a sense of it. But, you know, you always like that one story. Well, And there once was a man named Frank, right? And, and that's what you remember. You remember Frank's particular story. And so you want to kind of get into that. And so um, this opportunity to either be a quote unquote first voice institution or to have um, first voices kind of like in your space is I think really important. And then the third and final thing I would say is the art of getting out of your own way, which is mm. really, really hard. Which is, I think a lot of times, you know, museums and uh, cultural institutions and places spend a lot of time figuring out, okay, this is what they're going to see. This is the experiment. They're going to learn this in this order and do this. Um, I don't know if you've met humans, but you know, we're, we're not really, we're not very good at following like someone else's sort of blueprint. And part of getting out of the way is listening to the way that other folks repeat the stories that you are trying to tell. Because it says, oh, I didn't even know that part of the story was interesting or funny or memorable. Huh. They kept in with that. Maybe next time we'll lean, we'll lean into that. Or, oh, wow, is that what they took away from that? That is an interesting lesson, but it's not the one we were trying to teach. And so I think um, learning to, to give space for our visitors to not only learn or take in whatever it is they're doing, but also um, leaving space for them to express either deliberately or in a way that lets us eavesdrop is, is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. I hope uh, people pay a lot of attention and take a lot of notes because there's definitely some gold in there. Uh, before we let you go, I want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners what is the best way for people to follow you and to learn more about the museum. Sure. So, uh, you know, the museum website is is up and running. So we're at www.iaamuseum.org, International African American Museum.org. Um, sign up on our uh, e-newsletters, mailing list. You can get kind of updates. We still do have our charter membership program open uh, until we open. Our public opening is indeed scheduled for January 21st, 2023. The more often I say it, the more of a reality it, it becomes. Uh, <laughs> speak it. Speak it out. Um, so I'm excited uh, for folks to uh, to discover that. Uh, and then, of course, you can always see me in the usual places like, you know, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter as like, what am I on Twitter now? I think I'm like Doc T Jedi 1619. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's just whatever mood uh, I'm, I'm kind of in. And of course, the museum is also on uh, all of our various uh, social media platforms as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, we have a few questions that we ask every guest. Sure. And these are just for fun. Okay. So you can shoot from the hip. <laughs> no pressure. So uh, do you choose a window seat or an aisle seat? A window. 
Yeah. Yeah. Why is that? Um, because, you know, if you're in the aisle, people are bumping up against you when they're trying mm-hmm. to like go back and forth. And I'm not, you know, I can, I can hold it. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and, you know, sometimes I used to get a little bit of motion sickness in the plane. And for some reason, mm-hmm. sitting next to the window kind of helped out. Plus, then you can lean, you can lean. Mm-hmm. Yes. Get that nap in if uh, you need to. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what's one thing in your carry on that you would never travel without? One thing in my carry on that I would never travel without. Um, we can talk about the thing. I know because it's the thing I buy when I do forget it. This is why I have so many mm. headphones. I have my uh, my over the ear uh, kind of headphones. And when I forget them, I cuss and then I go right into the, the airport shop, <laughs> pay 30% more than I should be paying to get, the, yes. to get these headphones. And I will have to acknowledge, sometimes I just put them on when I don't feel like talking to my seat, mate. There's not always something happening in there. Um, but uh, but if I'm not watching a movie, I like to listen to like my meditation sounds uh, when I'm on the airplane. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Pro tip right there. Put on the headphones, even if you're not listening. And hopefully nobody will bother mm-hmm. you. Absolutely. So if you had a free airline pass in a week with nothing else to do, where would you go next? You know, on my list is, is the Fiji islands. Like there are lots of places, mm-hmm. but I, I water. So I, I love, I love water. Um, and, you know, I've always seen the pictures of, of the beautiful, like glass bottom, you know, kind of huts and places that you can say, stay. And I haven't spent as much time in like the Pacific ocean side. I've done, you know, the Caribbean yeah. uh, a couple of times and sort of that kind of thing. So I haven't spent, um, as much time there. High second though is Panama because I've never seen the Panama mm-hmm. Canal and I am an engineer. So I'm a historian and oh, an engineer. Right. And so, you know, I just, I just want to get in there and ride through the locks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, super fun. So last question, what's something you have seen or done on the road that you wish you could go back and experience again with somebody you love? Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, I know. Okay, so um, a lot of us are hearing now around uh, the monarch butterflies um, and and one that their numbers are are dwindling, um, but also that they do this amazing migration every few generations, all the way from all the way up north, sort of down in Mexico. So actually on my bucket list is still going down there to Mexico to see. But when I was in Detroit, it turns out that we're really close to a place called Point Pele, maybe 90 minutes just south of it. And you go to Point Pele and it's like one of the last, it's like the farthest south land spot before you got to jump over some water. Um, to get into the United States, continue the journey. So the butterflies will get there and congregate when it's that mass migration, generational season kind of thing. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. So that is, uh, that is something that I would do again and want to take someone with me. Yeah. Ah, wonderful. That sounds amazing. Tanya, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a delight. You are so welcome. This has been great. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tanya Matthews. I know I certainly did. I found her absolutely delightful and really insightful and encouraging. And, you know, even though much of what we were talking about had to do specifically uh, with museums and the way they educate people, I think it has a lot of parallels to what we do in travel, no matter whether we're visiting museums in a specific trip or not. So I want to circle back and hit a few things that Tanya said and uh, re-examine them, especially in the context of the travel business to make sure you don't miss the important things we can take away. You know, when she was talking about uh, the diverse educational backgrounds that people bring to tourism and museum experiences, she said, museums have a whole bunch of doorways in and a whole bunch of doorways out. And uh, speaking of her museum, she said, we take on the responsibility of meeting you, the visitor, meeting you where you are and helping you get to where you want to go. Now, I think this parallels so well to travel because when you put together a group trip, you are going to have a few dozen people on a trip together who have vastly different educational experiences, life experiences, ideological backgrounds. There are many doorways into your trips and those people are probably all looking for something a little bit different from the travel experience. So it is wise for you as a travel planner to always keep this in mind. Uh, Never assume that everyone in your group necessarily 
shares your uh, socioeconomic experiences, that they share your political ideology, even that they share uh, your religious background, because uh, people are diverse. Americans are certainly diverse, and we come from a lot of different places and backgrounds. But if we can meet people where they are, as Tanya mentioned, and give them a bunch of different ways to experience the destinations that we're taking them to, then we can create real opportunities for growth, for lifelong memories, and for community building that we just have to make sure we're intentional about. Because the more we give people those different pathways to great experiences, the more those travel experiences are going to stick with them, and the more they are going to become loyal to you, to your company, and to the idea of traveling together in groups. Now, another thing Tanya said when she was speaking about dealing with difficult topics, she said, stuff that's scary outside of our space becomes a little less scary in our space. I think that is a a wonderful uh, point of view for a museum professional, but I think it's also something we can endeavor to emulate in the travel community. You know, if you take people to enough places, you're eventually going to come across some difficult topics. But I don't think we should ever make tourism more difficult or scary than it needs to be. In fact, I think travel and group travel experiences in particular can become a really healthy and safe space for people to experience things they haven't experienced before, whether it's something ideological or even something as simple as trying a new food or uh, experiencing a new culture. I think we can do that in a way that is safe, that makes people feel cared for and inspires them to pursue more of those kinds of experiences instead of sitting behind a closed mindset and uh, refusing to learn and to grow. Now, finally, when Tanya was talking about how she deals with uh, bringing people of diverse backgrounds together into a conversation at her museum or in other places, she said this. She said, the first stage is invitation. The second stage is welcome. And the third stage is conversation. I think this is such an insightful approach to dealing with difficult topics. And again, I think it parallels a lot to what we do in travel. Uh, If you're trying to reach out to new communities, new customers, new potential travelers to get them involved in what you're doing, well, the first stage is just to invite them in. Tell them, hey, we're doing this amazing thing. We're having a lot of fun on the road and we want you to be a part of it. Once you do that, though, you can't just put them on the trip and hope they have a good time. You need to really go out of your way to make sure they feel welcome. And then once they do, their minds and hearts are open to having some of those travel experiences that they might have been skeptical about, especially if they've never been on a group trip before. And once you've won their hearts and minds like that, it makes it much easier to uh, walk them into travel experiences that are maybe outside their comfort zone, things they never would have thought to do before, things they never thought they would do in their whole lives, places they never considered going, conversations and topics that uh, they always felt uncomfortable with. Well, you might have permission to lead somebody into a really moving experience if you go through that process of invitation and welcome before you lead them into that new territory. Great stuff there from Tanya Matthews. So earlier in the show, we talked about Real ID and how Homeland Security has decided to delay implementation of that rule again by another two years. Well, I have some thoughts on that, and we're going to talk about them in today's Hot Minute. That's right. The Hot Minute is the portion of the show where I take 60 seconds to give you my unfiltered views on an issue that impacts tourism every day. And today we're talking all about the debacle that is Real ID. So let's put 60 seconds on the clock and get into it. Real ID is an absolute joke and it needs to be put out of its misery. You know, it's been more than 20 years since the terrorist attacks of 9-11, which were the impetus for this new law. And do you know how many successful terrorist attacks have happened on airplanes in the U.S. since then? Zero. Not a single one. You know, this law was passed in 2005. It was supposed to go into effect in 2008. But in the 15 years that it has been delayed and delayed and delayed, that delay has not made Americans any less safe when we've traveled. What it has done, though, is cost us a lot of time and money. Uh, Just in 2022, I've spent $100 on a new passport. 
$85 on a new pre-check clearance and $80 on a real ID that it turns out I didn't even need. And the kicker is that I had to show my passport to get the real ID. And to get my passport, I had to show a photo ID. So it's this stupid cycle of unnecessary expense. And guess what? Nobody's lining up to reimburse me for it. So here's an idea. Put real ID out of its misery and let people get on with travel. That's the hot minute or I don't know, minute plus a few seconds. And as always, you're welcome to disagree and we can still be friends. Whether you agree, disagree, or have other thoughts, maybe a perspective that I have never thought of, boy, I'd love to hear that from you. You can reach out to us with anything you'd like to share. Podcast at grouptravelleader.com. I read every email that comes into that address, and I would love to hear from you. And hey, you never know, your thoughts or questions or comments may just be the topic of the next hot minute. And hey, while you're in the mood to give us some feedback, of course, we would always love for you to go to your favorite podcast player. Give us a star rating. Leave us a review. We really, really appreciate it. And I thank you in advance for that. Also want to extend another thank you to Tanya Matthews. The International African American Museum is set to open in Charleston January 21st of next year. It's coming soon. So be on the lookout for that. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of Gather and Go. And for that matter, it about wraps it up for 2022. We're going to take a short hiatus for the holidays, but don't worry. We will be back in mid-January of 2023 with lots of great content. I've already begun interviewing people for next year's podcast. You are going to love the great information that we're going to bring you next year. Until then, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas and a fantastic holiday season. And above all, I hope you remember this. At the end of the day, we're all on this trip together. So let's make it a good one. See you in 2023 on Gather and Go. Gather and Go is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Jewell. Our publisher is Mac Lacey. Donya Simmons is our creative director. Ashley Ricks is our circulation manager and graphic designer. Our sales team is Kyle Anderson and Bryce Wilson. To advertise on the podcast, call Kyle or Bryce at 888-253-0455. Gather and Go is a production of the Group Travel Leader. For more information about our magazines, podcasts, and events, visit us online at grouptravelleader.com. 